So, if you will find 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to pick up there. Now, um, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul has already addressed some of the problems that are presenting in worship in the Corinthian congregation. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, the two problems seem to be um, that the, the women are praying and prophesying. It may be the worship situation, but their manner by which they do it is somehow inappropriate. They're, they're removing their head covering. It's, it's seen as uh, uh, it's disturbing to some. And then he mentions the Lord's Supper. And in mentioning the Lord's Supper, they're, they're not engaging in that meal together as if it's the Lord's Supper. They're being very selfish. They're being self-centered. And, and if you track the Corinthians' problem, it seems that everyone has the same problem. We can, we can come up with an entire list of things and say, this is what's wrong in Corinth. They've got this problem. They've got this problem. They've got this problem. But if you boil it all down, it comes down to one problem. Everybody's seeking their own benefit everyone's in it in a very self-centered way they're drawing attention to themselves they're wanting attention for themselves they're having their own experience every single problem comes down to that so what's happening at the lord's supper they're dividing up into their little different groups uh they're they're coming together just to uh, feed their bellies they're coming together to just fill their faces they don't care about sharing with anyone else. They may be dividing up into classes. Uh, the rich over here, the poor over here, the acceptable over here, the unacceptable over here. Who knows? Whatever they're doing, though, they're all interested in their own agenda and themselves. Uh, even these women who are praying and prophesying, they're, they're wanting to express their freedom, and they, they, want, they want everything that they want. This seems to be the problem throughout uh, Corinth. So, when we pick up in 12, I want you to understand a few things. 12, 13, and 14 are a unit. They go together. Now, now the whole thing goes together. But 12, 13, and 14 form uh, a full argument. And bef before you can understand 14, 14's where we're going to get to 14, and oh, it's going to get interesting, you know, because that's where all the... That's where all the controversial stuff is about who can speak in worship and who can't speak in worship and silence and not silence. Okay, but here's, you cannot get into 14 without first covering 12 and 13. The whole, the whole book is important to understanding it for context, but 12 and 13 are critical to understanding the context of 14 because Paul doesn't just launch into 14. In fact, let's take a little look over at 14. Notice what he says. 14.1, he just starts out and he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Where, where is he getting this? Well, pursue love comes from chapter 13. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts is the discussion that he framed in chapter 12. Um, so... All of this is part of a, of a larger um, address that he's making to the issues that he's received from them. Now, again, to review, Paul is aware of what's going on in Corinth, 
at least from two sources that we know about. One of them he mentions in uh, 1.11, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So he has this report from Chloe's household or Chloe's people, whoever they are, and they've told Paul there's quarreling at Corinth. The other source of information that Paul has uh, we find it in, in chapter 16, verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts uh, in Achaia. Uh, skip on down. Verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they've made up for your absence. Uh, and, it, and it appears that these, these three agents, these envoys on Corinth's behalf have brought Paul a letter that's responding to a previous letter that Paul has sent them. So Paul will talk about the things that they have written to him. When you see in Corinth, in in the Corinthian letter, when you see the words uh, now concerning or now, whatever it is, uh, or, or it'll be some formula of uh, about these things in Greek, it's 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 uh, peride. Okay, so but but he says about these things concerning these things. Uh, wherever you see that, that's Paul entering into a new topic. It'd be it'd be the first century Greek equivalent to a bullet point. Okay, we use bullet points to divide up the things that we want to say to people. If we're doing PowerPoint, we bullet point it, or we have a, a one. Two, three, four, five. We have a numerical list. This is Paul's numerical list. So when we get into 12, he's introducing one of their topics, and he's addressing it now. And it is about the spiritual things. Um, some translations, like the one I have here, the English Standard Version, says, Now concerning spiritual gifts. That's not a good translation. I don't agree with that. Um, I, I think they should distinguish that because the word there is not has nothing to do with gifts. It's more about the spiritual things. It could be translated spiritual persons. That, that's fair. But he's talking about the spiritual things, the things that have to do with the Spirit. If you want your Greek word there, it's your uh, pneumatikoi, which is, boy, that's a good word. You know, it makes it, it, it sounds like a sneeze when you say it and, it, and it does. It has to do with the things of the Spirit and these mysterious things. So they've written him about spirituality. That's my, that, that might be a good translation. Now, concerning spirituality. Be, because we live in a day and age where everyone has a concern to be spiritual. Uh, not just not just Christians, but there's a lot of people who are concerned about being spiritual. Have you ever met that person who says, you know, you talk to them, you talk about their their faith, or maybe you get into a conversation about their faith, and they'll say, I'm not particularly religious, but I am a spiritual person. Ah, okay. Now, if you get into that conversation, trust me, you want to be respectful, but you want to go with it. You want to talk about that. Talk about spirituality. That's a great thing. Go ahead and enter into the conversation. Uh, no need to be combative. Uh, you know, we don't have to throw out the paint samples there and say, quick, pick a religion. You know, just, just let them, just go with it. You know, just go with it. Let them be spiritual. 
because we want to be spiritual, and there's nothing wrong with spirituality. And Paul here says, spirituality, let's talk about it. Now, they've asked him some questions. He's fully aware of what their issues are, and so remember, he's addressing that. But let's, let's read and hear chapter 12. He says, now concerning spirituality, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For no one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the work of miracles, to another prophecy, to another ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Okay, let's stop there before he gets into his analogy. I, I think it's good to keep the translation in 12.1 on spirituality or spiritual things because the word that he picks up in 4 for gifts is a different word. Uh, and it's a word that we've carried over into English when we talk about charismatic. Uh, and, and, and the charismatic movements that you see in our recent history and in American history, uh, in Christian history, have something to do with spiritual gifts. Uh, there were charismatic movements in the 60s and 70s, and it, 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 it took place even in Churches of Christ and in, um, uh, in um, evangelical groups, Protestant groups, and um, a lot of people got, you know, got a lot of benefit out of that and a lot of people were scared to death because uh you know when this holy spirit starts unleashing and everything and then everybody starts experiencing it's like well now do we know if this is real or is this chicanery you know is this real or is this is this uh just put on or show um the word charismatic comes from this word that's translated as gifts and it is and 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 we hear charismatic or charismata or whatever it is, and we think spirituality, spiritual gifts. But the word is really connected to the word for grace. It has more to do with grace than with the Spirit. Of course, Paul's going to link it all together and show that it's the same. That you don't divvy it up and say, here's grace over here, here's the Spirit over here. Maybe he's adjusting the Corinthians' notions of what spiritual is. After all, they wanted to have a discussion about spiritual things, so he's giving them that discussion. And he's telling them, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be like you were when you were pagans, when you got carried away with spiritual things and you ended up following these uh, mute idols, is what he calls them. That's... Um, that's Jewish language. That's prophetic language. Uh, that's, that's the problem, is that 
the, the Gentiles, the people of the world who don't know God. Uh, they worship idols, false gods that can't even speak. And, and, and Israel distinguishes God. One of the fascinating things about God is, is that God speaks. He reveals himself. He speaks through the prophets. He speaks in his word. Uh, God tells his people what to do. They don't have to uh, scratch their heads and wonder and guess and interpret vague signs. God communicates clearly. And it's one of the, it's one of the statements that you'll read about over and over again in Scripture and from the prophets that distinguishes God from the false gods is that he clearly communicates. And of course, when we get into Hebrews, Hebrews starts out with the whole idea that, that God has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. Now he hasn't just uh, spoken through angels or revelation or prophets. He's come in the flesh. His son, Jesus Christ. We've met him. He's real. And, uh, then, he can, and, and then, of course, he continues on to communicate with us by his spirit now in those first in that first section which is verses one through three paul sets up a definition of spiritual that we might kind of pass by because we want to get into all that stuff that has to do with tongue speaking and what kind of gift do you have and we love lists and he's got a bullet point and he's naming all these different manifestations of the spirit and we want to comb through that and find out which one we want And then we get all worried because there's stuff on that list that we haven't seen in centuries, and we're wondering, well, is that still around? No, it expired. You know, we I I never understood why there's an expiration date on some stuff. You know, God's got this great thing going there for a while, and you know, and then now it's gone. It's like you know, it's like old products that you can't get anymore. I figure God can do whatever He wants, and that's really Paul's point. His point is, is that it's not up to us to claim whatever gift we want. It's up to God by His grace to give us what He determines. But the first, the, 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 the capstone to all of this, there in 1 through 3, the first definition is that when you enter into a life where you are making the confessional statement that Jesus is Lord... And he is not accursed. You have already entered into the realm of the Spirit. That doesn't sound very mysterious, does it? That doesn't sound spooky and X-Files and kind of, uh, you know, mystical. No, but Paul says you don't have to be. Now those two claims, one, to say Jesus is accursed. The... um, the Jewish criticism of Jesus, and Paul himself would have been one of those that knew this, is that Jesus of Nazareth is to be accursed because he's a blasphemer. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God. And Paul himself will write in his letters, you know, there's that Old Testament verse, uh, cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. You have to understand that the people like Paul, before he met Jesus, regarded Jesus Christ and his followers as, as blasphemers to the true faith. They regarded it as a dangerous threat 
And so they would, they would say things. They would probably say things like, Jesus is accursed. That would have been their confessional statement. The, the statement of their faith perspective, the things that they would say would be that Jesus does, is not the Son of God, nor is he a prophet of God, nor is he a follower of God. And to say that Jesus is Lord means that you're denying that this would be the Gentile uh, perspective that you know, Gentiles might re- consider that there's many lords, or Caesar is the only lord, he's the only king, and then there are many gods, and the Caesars are gods, and this is the world that they live in. Now, this is not some test of witchcraft either, okay? We tend to make it very simple that if you can utter these magic words, you know, let's test the Spirit. Well, I have just said Jesus is accursed. I don't know how many times. Does that mean that I'm some kind of demon and not a true Christian? No, I'm reading the text. It's right there in the Bible. You understand the context, though, in which I'm saying that. It is not my confessional statement that Jesus is to be accursed. Now, now, to clarify that, we have to have some understanding of what a confessional statement is. Um, maybe we've seen too many movies or read too much, you know, history, and you know, you see these Salem witch trials, and they get people to confess and say something. Um, that that that's that's all very simplistic. Confessions are the statements that you and I live by. Confessions are the points of view that shape how we view everything else. Uh, to declare, for example, not, not only with words, but to declare in life and, and to declare by the way we live and the things we choose and the way we choose to see the world, to declare that in the beginning God created is an incredible statement. Because we're making an assertion that this is a creation that did not happen randomly, but it is the work of a divine creator. Now, irregardless of the how, and there's debates about that, I mean, you can read Genesis, and, you know, but, but to just assert that there is a creator that speaks the world into existence, that's a huge statement. Um, to assert that Jesus is the Son of God is a profound statement. One of the distinctions that uh, we see in the world uh, today is we, we, we wonder how other religious groups view Jesus Christ. Um, so, friends in India tell us, and, and you know, friends who are in countries where Hinduism is, is practiced or is dominant, say, well, sure, Jesus is the Son of God. There's a lot, God's got a lot of children. And so Jesus just sits on the shelf with everybody else. And yet the other part of the confession is, Jesus is Lord. And that's exclusive. Um, Muslims ask, how can Jesus be the Son of God? Yes, he could be a prophet, but to be the Son of God... God can have no son. And it's interesting, I've, I've talked to some of my colleagues have had, you know, rather than just using that as a distinctive way to separate themselves, they're having conversations with people of the Muslim faith who are, are asking, well, how does this even happen? You know, tell me about this. I want to know about this. Uh, I think it was, um, 
I think it was Bob Whitaker that was telling us about some of his neighbors that he's actually, you know, he's our, he's our uh, friend in, in, in Swaziland who, who does uh, God's work there. And he's actually, you know, he's, he's actually talking to neighbors and they're, they're, they're Muslim and they're wanting to know. It's like, you know, we, we want to know, how does this happen? How can, how can a man be the son of God? Okay. They're working towards a confession. They're trying to, to come up with a confession of what it means to say that and to believe that. And by the way, you and I may take that for granted, and it may just become a slogan or a cliche. And I encourage us, we need to really understand what we're saying when we make that statement that Jesus is God's only son. Yeah, what are we saying? So Paul wants them to know that by entering into these, these two statements, you have already entered the realm of spiritual things. Because you have just adjusted yourself to a spiritual reality that is happening right here. Now, this is where, this is where our, our, our Greek backgrounds get us in trouble. Because in the Greek world, there's, 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 sort of, there's sort of two layers to all of existence. There's the invisible, spiritual, the stuff that's going on in the invisible realms that you and I don't see. And then there's this physical stuff, 98.6 and breathing, uh, the, you know, the, the blood pumping uh, meat shells that we walk around in. And, uh, and, and so you've got, you got the world of the spiritual and the world of the material. Now, now, don't we still have those two distinctions today? It's with us everywhere. But Paul is saying that, wait a second. Wait a second. Maybe spiritual does not mean invisible, intangible, untouchable. Maybe, in fact, spiritual is just as real as material, and you don't need to separate the two. And remember, Paul's going to come out of the the, the experiences and the stories that we see in the Old Testament. And you think about what God is doing. How often is God an invisible, unseen presence in God? The, the stories of Israel. There's a few times. He's working behind the scenes in the story of Joseph, where uh, Joseph has dreams. Now, that's intangible. But the ramifications of those dreams are very real because it comes down to famine and it comes down to people's lives being saved and, and it comes down to people resisting that Joseph is a visionary for God and they they want to kill him and then they're going to throw him into a pit and then they sell him into slavery so it has very real ramifications even though it's very unseen but in joseph's father's case god gets about as real as you can get as he's out there by the river and he's been in his uncle's land for 20 years and he knows that his brother's coming and he thinks his brother's coming to kill him and all of a sudden god shows up at night puts him in a headlock, full Nelson, and shoves his face in the mud, starts wrestling him, and God gets him in a grip, and his hip gets busted. That's real. That gets right down to the bone and the sinews. But that's also spiritual. So when we look at our database call it of, of stories, this spiritual God that is beyond you know, our three dimensions and our material experience 
he's very spiritual, but he's also real in ways that transcend our definitions of reality. So Paul's reminding him of that, that you don't get a very tidy existence of here's the spiritual stuff over here, here's the physical stuff over here, and, never, and every once in a while the two have to meet. Because they would have had people in their culture, and some of this might have been showing up. We don't know, but you can, you can see it in there, that once they became followers of Christ, they may have thought, oh, well, now that we're spiritual, we'll, just, um, we'll attain to the spiritual stuff, and what happens in our fleshly bodies, that, that doesn't count. So the fact that some of them are engaging in prostitution, well, you know, that's just the body, that doesn't count. Or, or the fact that some of them are just eating, that doesn't count. Or the fact that some of them are in relationships and then they say, well, I'm a believer, my spouse isn't, so I'll just ditch them and leave them behind because I don't want to be unclean. That's divorcing those two realities and Paul's wanting them to bring it back together. And so he says, when you can make the statement, Jesus is Lord, and when you refuse to believe that Jesus is accursed, you've made, um, you've made an entrance into the spiritual world. By the way, one more thing about Jesus is accursed. That sounds weird to us because we've grown up in a Western Christian culture and in a um, so-called Christian nation where everyone is nominally Christian. Okay? And you might argue, oh, well, I don't know that's the case anymore. Yeah, it is. More than... It is, trust me, more than at anywhere else in the world. So, I mean, you and I do not exist, nor have we grown up, nor have our parents and our grandparents come out of a culture where Jesus is viewed as something to be disregarded or, uh, or cursed. Now, when, when you, some of you have been to nations where you've seen that. Uh, when we were in Bulgaria... It's interesting that you talk to some of the Bulgarians who are my age and up. And they were taught in the days of communism that the Western church, Christianity, uh, Jesus, these things are trouble. Now, in the meanwhile, they've got the Orthodox church over here that they have kind of an interesting relationship with. And the spiritual can go there. But the truly enlightened know that it's all a lot of um, nonsense and no good and you know there's problems with it and now that idea hangs on today into the next generation but they don't have the political animosity towards it but you do run into a lot of people who say well I don't really believe in the church I don't have anything to do with religion in fact I'm not a very religious person but I am spiritual ah full circle okay and and, and this is where Paul is saying quit trying to separate the two all right moving on in 4 through 11 this is where he wants to shift the conversation from just spiritual things to gifts that uh that the spiritual things are not something that you and i can can learn not it's not something that you and i can just jump into and acquire you know they got all these shows and movies today of um you know, Harry Potter stuff, all these kids learning magic or something and all this, you know, and if they work real hard at it, then they get better. Well, some of that is what you see with their views of spirituality. 
that if you learn the secret knowledge or if you go further with it, guess what? You get better and you get deeper and you get more spiritual. And you and I experience this in the culture around us when, uh, especially during the holidays, when people tell us that if we really know the secret languages or the secret wisdom of the Bible, we can read the hidden code that tells us what's going to happen in the next 20 years and uh, how to get rich or how to stay out of trouble or what nation is what. Okay. Paul says that's, that's not spiritual giftedness. Spiritual giftedness is not cracking the code to find out what's really going on. He said, and, and by the way, Paul may be introducing the idea that spirituality is a gift. He says the gifts that we are given come from the same spirit. You don't manipulate that spirit and control it, which they would have seen. They would have known people who would have had the ability to be ecstatic or to go into a trance or to connect with the spiritual world he says god's alive and active and once you enter into that whole idea that jesus is lord well then guess what god's going to give you what he needs you to have it's a gift it's his grace now we tend to think of a gift as sort of a bonus or something we get on our birthday or some sort of little present it's because we're not used to living with a king or an emperor When you live in an empire, you live in a kingdom, the king gives you, by his grace, everything that you have. So if you're one of his nobles, for example, he gives you a title or he gives you lands. You can claim, well, my family's owned this. We paid a pretty penny for it. It's the king's to give. He gives you that title. He gives you that name. He gives you that that honor. And so the king assigns all of this. And he's saying that the God, that God is the same God who gives that spirit that's behind all of this. And so as he goes through that list of the different manifestations of it, he's just giving examples. In verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Ah, now, it's the same spirit, the same source behind all these gifts. And they're all for the same purpose, for the common good. So none of this is to make us special. It's to build up the church. Uh, This is why he will say in verse 4, there are varieties of gifts. And by the way, he doesn't stop with the word gifts like we often do. We go spiritual, we go spiritual gifts. Well, keep reading. There's varieties of service. What about spiritual service? Oh, but gifts are so much better. Service is work. Okay. What about spiritual activities? Because he does, he, he talks about gifts, uh, forms of service, and activities. Where The word there is like energies, uh, doings, happenings. He's saying that, that, that the Spirit empowers Uh, The gifts that people have, the services that they perform, and the activities or the energy. But whatever it is that he gives them, it's the same God behind it, and it's all done for the common good. Now we can understand where he's going with his analogy. So let's pick up reading in verse uh, 12. For just as the body, he's talking about a human body, is one and has many members, and members and all the members of the body, though many, make up one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, 
we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, well, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged all the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. And if all were a single member, well, then where would the body be? As it is, there's many parts and yet one body. So, you know, we tend to read member there and we think of a uh, club member or a participant. Uh, He's talking, I, I want you to hear the word member there the same way we use the word dismember. You can be a member of an organization and you can leave it. I used to be a member, I'm not now. Okay. Hey, do you shop at Sam's Club? Yeah, I got a membership a few years ago, but I let it fall and so I don't go there. So I'm not a member of Sam's Club anymore. Okay. You can be a member, you cannot be a member. No one says, uh, uh, hey, you know, do you shop at Sam's Club? Well, I did until I got dismembered from Sam's Club. We don't use the language that way. Dismemberment is cruel. It's brutal, isn't it? That's like having a part of your body chopped off. That's what he's talking about. The members of your body are the organs and the the limbs. This This is graphic physical language. And remember, he's talking about spiritual stuff. And so he says all these parts together make up one body. And you really can't differentiate it. And so he gets into these little comical dialogues between the parts of the body. And you can have fun with it. I'll, I like the readings where it says, uh, you know, if the whole body were an eye, then how would it hear? If the whole body were an ear, then how would it smell? The answer is awful, you know. You ever smelled someone's ear? So anyway, you know, or, or when he's talking about the foot. If the whole body were a foot, how would it smell? Terrible. So. But again, have fun with it because this is his point. He's saying it's ridiculous to think that the body could be just one single part. It it has to all work together. And that's exactly where he goes in verse 21. He says the eye can't say to the hand. I mean, it's already ridiculous. You've got an eye talking. But he says the eye cannot say to the hand, "Um, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, we don't need you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, and weaker here could also be translated, um, well, he says, you know, he does get into that in a second. He goes, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts of the body that we think are less honorable, uh, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts don't require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is an argument from natural experience. He's trying to say to them, look, the parts of your body don't 
live at war with each other. And he says, neither should the church, the body of Christ, do that. You can't have some people in the body of Christ say, we deserve more respect or we're better than others. We are freeborn, we're not slave-born. We are Jewish, we have a better heritage, or we have more knowledge or philosophy. He says, you can't do that. You are linked to one another because just like a human body, you are the body of Christ. And for whatever reason, God has chosen not to bestow all the gifts in, single, in, in, in individuals. I suppose he could do that if he willed, because it is his grace. But he's given all the gift and the energy and the service to the entire body. It's a system the same way our body is a system. And so he wraps it up with the final section. He says, now, here's his, his application. You then are the body of Christ. And individually, you're members of it. Not church members. Your members, your, your organs, your limbs, your connective tissue, your bone, your, you're the head, you're the eye, you're all of the parts. You know. And yeah, there's even some elbows and maybe even some warts, you know. I mean, they got all, he says, some of this stuff, it doesn't make any sense, you know, but it's there because you've got to have it all to make up a body. And he's actually telling them, quit making distinctions between what matters and what doesn't matter. Because if a part of your body hurts, it doesn't matter how prominent it is, you're going to hurt. You can say, well, my knee hurts. But you can also say, boy, I hurt. Well, it's just your knee, isn't it? Yeah, well, cut it off. Oh, okay, great idea. He's telling them, you can't do that. God has appointed in the church then first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. This is not a hierarchy, by the way. He says, then miracles and then gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. I mean, he's just, he's just throwing all the different gifts and services and activities in there. Is everyone an apostle? No. Is everyone a prophet? No. Or is everyone a teacher? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess healing? No. I'm throwing in the no, by the way, because these are rhetorical questions. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? Well, no, but, but some do, and that all works together is his point. But then he does talk about some good gifts, some gifts that are better than others. Wait a second. He's just made the argument now that all these gifts are important for the full functioning of the body, and not everybody can do everything, but some people can do some, okay? And then guess what? Now he surprises them and he says, but you know what? There are some extra special gifts. There are some gifts that are better than others. Hmm. Because that's what they were thinking. That the ones who had this gift, and it just depended on who you asked, you know. What was really funny about the Corinthians is, is that uh, if you wanted to find out what the most important gift was, it depended on who you asked. The tongue speakers seemed to think that the tongue speaking was the most important gift. The prophets seemed to think that the prophecy was the most important gift, and so on and so forth. Isn't it, isn't it funny how each one of them thought that the gift that they had was the most important? It's just, it's just amazing how that works out like that. Uh, and, and the... Um, but now he actually says there are some most important gifts. Now, we're going to leave it right there, but the, the more important gifts, the greater gifts, are going, to, are going to be the virtues. And the greatest of them all, he says, is going to be love. And the thing about love is that is the one gift that everyone can excel at. 
Okay, but we'll save that uh, for the next class that we have into uh, chapter 13. Uh, we're going to um, sing now. Communion's been prepared in uh, room 100 for those who want that. And then after this, Jerry Canfield's going to dismiss us tonight. Let's stand. Let's sing together. <laughs>